Nether Words. Read for you by Charles Logan. A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 15 Sola Tells Me Her Story. When consciousness returned, and, as I soon learned, I was down but a moment, I sprang quickly to my feet, searching for my sword. And there I found it, buried to the hilt in the green breast of Zad, who lay stone dead upon the ochre moss of the ancient sea bottom. As I regained my full senses, I found his weapon piercing my left breast, but only through the flesh and muscles which cover my ribs, entering near the center of my chest and coming out below the shoulder. As I had lunged, I had turned so that his sword merely passed beneath the muscles, inflicting a painful but not dangerous wound. Removing the blade from my body, I also regained my own, and turning my back upon his ugly carcass, I moved, sick, sore, and disgusted, toward the chariots which bore my retinue and my belongings. A murmur of Martian applause greeted me, but I cared not for it. Bleeding and weak, I reached my women, who, accustomed to such happenings, dressed my wounds, applying the wonderful healing and remedial agents which make only the most instantaneous of death blows fatal. Give a Martian woman a chance, and death must take a back seat. They soon had me patched up so that, except for weakness from the loss of blood and a little soreness around the wound, I suffered no great distress from this thrust, which, under earthly treatment, undoubtedly would have put me flat on my back for days. As soon as they were through with me, I hastened to the chariot of Dejathoris, where I found my poor Sola with her chest swathed in bandages, but apparently little the worse for her encounter with Sarkoja, whose dagger, it seemed, had struck the edge of one of Sola's metal breast ornaments and, thus deflected, had inflicted but a slight flesh wound. As I approached, I found Dejathoris lying prone upon her silks and furs, her lithe form racked with sobs. She did not notice my presence, nor did she hear me speaking with Sola, who was standing a short distance from the vehicle. Is she injured? I asked of Sola, indicating Dejathoris by an inclination of my head. No, she answered. She thinks that you are dead. And that her grandmother's cat may now have no one to polish its teeth? I queried, smiling. I think you wrong her, John Carter, said Sola. I do not understand either her ways or yours, but I am sure the granddaughter of ten thousand Jeddaks would never grieve like this over any who held but the highest claim upon her affections. They are a proud race, but they are just, as are all Barsoomians, and you must have hurt or wronged her grievously that she will not admit your existence living, though she mourns you dead. Tears are a strange sight upon Barsoom, she continued and so it is difficult for me to interpret them. I have seen but two people weep in all my life other than Dejathoris. 
one whipped from sorrow, the other from baffled rage. The first was my mother, years ago before they killed her. The other was Sarkoja, when they dragged her from me today. Your mother? I exclaimed. But, Sola, you could not have known your mother, child. But I did, and my father also, she added. If you would like to hear the strange and unbarsumian story, come to the chariot tonight, John Carter, and I will tell you that of which I have never spoken in all my life before. And now the signal has been given to resume the march. You must go. I will come tonight, Sola, I promised. Be sure to tell Dejothoris I am alive and well. I shall not force myself upon her. And be sure that you do not let her know that I saw her tears. If she would speak with me, I but await her command. Sola mounted the chariot, which was swinging into its place in line, and I hastened to my waiting thoat and galloped to my station beside Tars Tarkas at the rear of the column. We made a most imposing and awe-inspiring spectacle as we swung out across the yellow landscape. The two hundred and fifty ornate and brightly colored chariots, preceded by an advance guard of some two hundred mounted warriors and chieftains riding five abreast and one hundred yards apart, and followed by a like number in the same formation, with a score or more of flankers on either side. The fifty extra mastodons, or heavy draft animals known as zitadars, and the five or six hundred extra thoats of the warriors running loose within the hollow square formed by the surrounding warriors. The gleaming metal and jewels of the gorgeous ornaments of the men and women, duplicated in the trappings of the zitadars and thoats, and interspersed with the flashing colors of magnificent silks and furs and feathers, lent a barbaric splendor to the caravan which would have turned an East Indian potentate green with envy. The enormous broad tires of the chariots and the padded feet of the animals brought forth no sound from the moss-covered sea-bottom, and so we moved in utter silence, like some huge phantasmagoria, except when the stillness was broken by the guttural growling of a goaded zitadar or the squealing of fighting thoats. The green Martians converse but little, and then usually in monosyllables, low and like the faint rumbling of distant thunder. We traversed a trackless waste of moss, which, bending to the pressure of broad tire or padded foot, rose up again behind us, leaving no sign that we had passed. We might indeed have been the wraiths of the departed dead upon the dead sea of that dying planet for all the sound or sign we made in passing. It was the first march of a large body of men and animals I had ever witnessed which raised no dust and left no spoor, for there is no dust upon Mars, except in the cultivated districts during the winter months, and even then the absence of high winds renders it almost unnoticeable. We camped that night at the foot of the hills we had been approaching for two days, and which marked the southern boundary of this particular sea. Our animals had been two days without drink, nor had they had water for nearly two months, not since shortly after leaving Thark. But as Tars Tarkas explained to me, they required but little, and can live almost indefinitely upon the moss which covers Barsoom, and which, he told me, 
holds in its tiny stems sufficient moisture to meet the limited demands of the animals. After partaking of my evening meal of cheese-like food and vegetable milk, I sought out Sola, whom I found working by the light of a torch upon some of Tars Tarkas's trappings. She looked up at my approach, her face lighting with pleasure and with welcome. I am glad you came, she said. Deja Thoris sleeps, and I am lonely. Mine own people do not care for me, John Carter. I am too unlike them. It is a sad fate, since I must live my life amongst them, and I often wish that I were a true green Martian woman, without love and without hope. But I have known love, and so I am lost. I promised to tell you my story, or rather the story of my parents. From what I have learned of you and the wares of your people, I am sure that the tale will not seem strange to you. But among green Martians, it has no parallel within the memory of the oldest living Thark, nor do our legends hold many similar tales. My mother was rather small. In fact, too small to be allowed the responsibilities of maternity, as our chieftains breed principally for size. She was also less cold and cruel than most green Martian women, and caring little for their society, she often roamed the deserted avenues of Thark alone, or went and sat among the wild flowers that deck the nearby hills, thinking thoughts and wishing wishes which I believe I alone among Tharkian women today may understand, for am I not the child of my mother? And there among the hills she met a young warrior, whose duty it was to guard the feeding Zitadars and Thwarts, and see that they roamed not beyond the hills. They spoke at first only of such things as interest a community of Tharks, but gradually, as they came to meet more often, and as was now quite evident to both, no longer by chance. They talked about themselves, their likes, their ambitions, and their hopes. She trusted him, and told him of the awful repugnance she felt for the cruelties of their kind, for the hideous loveless lives they must ever lead and then she waited for the storm of denunciation to break from his cold, hard lips. But instead, he took her in his arms and kissed her. They kept their love a secret for six long years. She, my mother, was of the retinue of the great Tal Hajus, while her lover was a simple warrior, wearing only his own metal. Had their defection from the traditions of the Tharks been discovered, both would have paid the penalty in the great arena before Talhajus and the assembled hordes. The egg from which I came was hidden beneath a great glass vessel upon the highest and most inaccessible of the partially ruined towers of ancient Thark. Once each year, my mother visited it for the five long years it lay there in the process of incubation. She dared not come oftener, 
for in the mighty guilt of her conscience she feared that her every move was watched. During this period my father gained great distinction as a warrior, and had taken the metal from several chieftains. His love for my mother had never diminished, and his own ambition in life was to reach a point where he might wrest the metal from Tal Hajus himself, and thus, as ruler of the Thaks, be free to claim her as his own, as well as, by the might of his power, protect the child which otherwise would be quickly dispatched should the truth become known. It was a wild dream, that of wrestling the metal from Talhajus in five short years, but his advance was rapid, and he soon stood high in the councils of Thark. But one day, the chance was lost forever, in so far as it could come in time to save his loved ones, for he was ordered away upon a long expedition to the ice-clad south to make war upon the natives there and despoil them of their furs, for such is the manner of the green Barsoomian. He does not labor for what he can wrest in battle from others. He was gone for four years, and when he returned, all had been over for three. For about a year after his departure, and shortly before the time for the return of an expedition which had gone forth to fetch the fruits of a community incubator, the egg had hatched. Thereafter my mother continued to keep me in the old tower, visiting me nightly and lavishing upon me the love the community life would have robbed us both of. She hoped, upon the return of the expedition from the incubator, to mix me with the other young assigned to the quarters of Talhajus, and thus escape the fate which would surely follow discovery of her sin against the ancient traditions of the Grian men. She taught me rapidly the language and customs of my kind, and one night she told me the story I have told you up to this point, impressing upon me the necessity for absolute secrecy and the great caution I must exercise after she had placed me with the other young Tharks, to permit no one to guess that I was further advanced in education than they nor by any sign to divulge in the presence of others my affection for her, or my knowledge of my parentage. And then drawing me close to her, she whispered in my ear, the name of my father. And then a light flashed out upon the darkness of the tower chamber, and there stood Sarkoja, her gleaming baleful eyes fixed in a frenzy of loathing and contempt upon my mother. The torrent of hatred and abuse she poured out upon her turned my young heart cold in terror. That she had heard the entire story was apparent, and that she had suspected something wrong from my mother's long nightly absences from her quarters accounted for her presence there on that fateful night. One thing she had not heard, nor did she know, the whispered name of my father. This was apparent from her repeated demands upon my mother to disclose the name of her partner in sin, but no amount of abuse or threats could wring this from her, and to save me from the needless torture, she lied, for she told Sakoja that she alone knew 
nor would she even tell her child. With final imprecations, Sakwaja hastened away to Talhajas to report her discovery. And while she was gone, my mother, wrapping me in the silks and furs of her night coverings so that I was scarcely noticeable, descended to the streets and ran wildly away towards the outskirts of the city in the direction which led to the far south, out toward the man whose protection she might not claim, but on whose face she wished to look once more before she died. As we neared the city's southern extremity, a sound came to us from across the mossy flat, from the direction of the only pass through the hills which led to the gates, the pass by which caravans from either north or south or east or west would enter the city. The sounds we heard were the squealing of thoughts and the grumbling of zitadars, with the occasional clank of arms which announced the approach of a body of warriors. The thought uppermost in her mind was that it was my father returned from his expedition, but the cunning of the Thark held her from headlong and precipitate flight to greet him. Retreating into the shadows of a doorway, she awaited the coming of the cavalcade, which shortly entered the avenue, breaking its formation and thronging the thoroughfare from wall to wall. As the head of the procession passed us, the lesser moon swung clear of the overhanging roofs and lit up the scene with all the brilliancy of her wondrous light. My mother shrank further back into the friendly shadows, and from her hiding place saw that the expedition was not that of my father, but the returning caravan bearing the young Tharks. Instantly her plan was formed, and as a great chariot swung close to our hiding place, she slipped stealthily in upon the trailing tailboard. Crouching low in the shadow of the high side, straining me to her bosom in a frenzy of love. She knew what I did not, that never again after that night would she hold me to her breast, nor was it likely we would ever look upon each other's face again. In the confusion of the plaza, she mixed me with the other children, whose guardians during the journey were now free to relinquish their responsibility. We were herded together into a great room fed by women who had not accompanied the expedition, and the next day we were parceled out among the retinues of the chieftains. I never saw my mother after that night. She was imprisoned by Talhajas, and every effort, including the most horrible and shameful torture, was brought to bear upon her to wring from her lips the name of my father. But she remained steadfast and loyal, dying at last, amidst the laughter of Tal Hajis and his chieftains during some awful torture she was undergoing. I learned afterward that she told them that she had killed me to save me from a like fate at their hands, and that she had thrown my body to the white apes. Sakoja alone disbelieved her and I feel to this day that she suspects my true origin, but does not dare expose me at the present at all events, because she also guesses, I am sure, the identity of my father. When he returned from his expedition and learned the story of my mother's fate, 
I was present, as Tal Hajjus told him, but never by the quiver of a muscle did he betray the slightest emotion. Only he did not laugh as Tal Hajjus gleefully described her death struggles. From that moment on he was the cruelest of the cruel, and I am awaiting the day when he shall win the goal of his ambition and feel the carcass of Tal Hajjus beneath his foot. For I am as sure that he but waits the opportunity to wreak a terrible vengeance, and that his great love is as strong in his breast as when it first transfigured him nearly forty years ago, as I am that we sit here upon the edge of a world-old ocean, while sensible people sleep, John Carter. And your father, Sola, is he with us now? I asked. Yes, she replied, but he does not know me for what I am, nor does he know who betrayed my mother to Tal Hajjus. I alone know my father's name, and only I and Tal Hajjus and Sakoja know that it was she who carried the tale that brought death and torture upon her he loved. We sat silent for a few moments. She wrapped in the gloomy thoughts of her terrible past, and I in pity for the poor creatures whom the heartless, senseless customs of their race had doomed to loveless lives of cruelty and of hate. Presently she spoke. John Carter, if ever a real man walked the cold, dead bosom of Barsoom, you are one. I know that I can trust you, and because the knowledge may someday help you, or him, or Dejathoris, or myself, I am going to tell you the name of my father, nor place any restrictions or conditions upon your tongue. When the time comes, speak the truth if it seems best to you. I trust you because I know that you are not cursed with the terrible trait of absolute and unswerving truthfulness that you could lie, like one of your own Virginia gentlemen, if a lie would save others from sorrow or suffering. My father's name is Tars Takis. Mm -hmm.